We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. Worried? On edge? Stressed out? Easily distracted? Ready to snap? Defensive? We know the signs, but perhaps not the diagnosis. My witness today calls this everyday anxiety. Even if you don't feel particularly anxious, it's important to understand the many ways that anxiety can show up in your life. And you're not alone. According to new research, 90% of the population suffers from it. My witness is Dr. Wendy A. Suzuki, who is a professor of neural science and psychology in the Center for Neural Science at New York University. Her major research interest is brain plasticity, and she's best known for her studies in how we form and retain new long-term memories. She draws on this knowledge for her first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, But we're going to be talking about her latest book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Wendy, welcome to The Meaningful Life. I think let's dive straight in and ask you how anxiety has impacted on your own life. Ah, yeah. So I learned an enormous amount about my own anxiety in writing this book. The first thing I learned is that I'm an anxiety denier. Once I started diving in and literally going through all of those words that you used at the top of this podcast, and I was honest with myself, I was like, I I feel a lot of those words. I like to block it out and pretend like everything's just fine. I like to be the, you know, the optimistic and positive one. But in reality, I have a lot of anxieties and it was freeing. It was releasing to be able to admit that and realize that, that that's what I do. That's at the beginning of the journey. At the end of the journey, uh, the journey of writing the book, the thing that surprised me most is that I found myself making friends with my own anxiety. And that's why I can say, yes, I believe that anxiety can be good. It is there to warn you. And you can use that and say, oh, I'm just afraid of the warning. Uh, It's something bad. It's always going to be something bad. Or you can use that warning as a way to help you find the direction to act on it. And that's why I went from anxiety denier to anxiety embracer and anxiety appreciator. And so I talk a lot about my anxieties. For example, my oldest anxiety is, might be a little bit surprising, is social anxiety. Of course, I became a speaker and a professor because I'm kind of a different persona when I teach, when I go on podcasts. But what really scares me is being myself at a party. (laughs) That still scares me. (laughs) So very common anxieties that I share in my book, including Anxieties over money, anxieties over failure, anxieties, in addition to my very, very long-standing kind of social party anxiety. Were you anxious as a child? I was a very shy child. So yes, I, I think that anxiety was part of it. Uh, there was fear of being seen, fear of speaking up. I always, again, my anxiety-denying self I just called myself shy, but I'm sure that fear and anxiety were part of those feelings that were going on when I was growing up. I was going to say, actually, as a child, I was branded as shy Mm -hmm. as well. And I think that that's the sort of thing our parents would rather say we're shy, because that seems to be about us, than anxious, Mm -hmm. which might, they think, have something to do with them as well. (laughs) So I don't think it's just us that actually rebrand anxiety as something else. I think it's probably our parents that have done it. Our whole society does it. Exactly. Because it's sort of the stereotype of anxious is something that none of us want to be. So, you know, we don't mind being shy or, you know, socially ambivalent or, (laughs) you know, having troubles at parties. But anxiety 
it sort of is a step too much. Yes. And I think that what I really like about your book is not only the message about how we don't need to be ashamed of being anxious, Mm -hmm. 90% of the population suffers from it. And to be honest, I think when I describe my list, I would say the other 10% are lying. Exactly. (laughs) And you've got some very useful and practical things to help us with it. So why do you think anxiety is so misunderstood? I think that Anxiety is so misunderstood because I found so much shame around this word. People don't realize that it's a normal human emotion. And I think there's lots of different reasons. One is because there is clinical anxiety and nobody wants to be branded as, oh, I'm clinically anxious. I have a mental problem. Let's just quickly give the names of the actual official anxiety disorders so that we've got those out there, because that's not really what we're talking about today, right, is it? Right, right. So there are five clinical disorders associated with anxiety. They include general anxiety disorder, social anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and panic disorder. Those are the five clinically identified anxieties. But it's a spectrum, isn't wide it, anxiety? Spectrum, yes, very wide spectrum. And in fact, I started out writing this book not to address those five clinical levels of anxiety that people go to professionals like yourself to address, but instead to address the lower levels of anxiety that also exists on all of this wide spectrum, what I call everyday anxiety. And there's varieties across all of these different five categories that get lower and that people are are suffering from today. And I love the title Everyday Anxiety because mm-hmm. I think that really explains it because this is not something you feel occasionally. Yeah. This is a day-in, yes. day-out sort of kind of thing. Yeah. And we're generally not aware how we manage it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you a personal example and I'll swap you for one of your personal examples of how you manage everyday anxiety. I moved from England where I'd lived all my life. I understood the system entirely. And then I came to Germany, which is an entirely different country, Mm. which has totally different ways of doing things in another language and everything else. And I never realised how generally anxious I was because I sort of managed it very well because Mm. I was always in my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I understood how the system worked. And so, therefore, I never really had to come across it. Whereas moving to a different country and not understanding the system Mm -hmm. and having often wild imagination of how it could actually work, I was suddenly, for the first time in my life, really had to face Mm. that I was a far more anxious person than I thought. Mm -hmm. And I'd Mm -hmm. actually been secretly managing it (laughs) by keeping in the same place, in a sense. You know, I lived in the same house for 30 years. So the anxiety about new things, I never had to face. Mm. I wonder how you were managing your everyday anxiety without really realizing it. Yeah. Well, actually, I have a really recent example that is in the same vein as yours. My book, Good Anxiety, was sold in France, and I'm leaving in two days to Paris to do a book tour in French because I do speak French, but I am <laughs> I am out of practice. And I did it five years ago for my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, but I had lots more time to practice. And I had French friends at the time who all moved away since. So I've been madly watching Netflix French series <laughs> to try and get my ear right. Are you watching The Agent? The, yes, uh, I think yes. They call it 10%. Percent, yes. I love that one. And also the Parisian agency, the one about the gorgeous French family that sells luxury homes in Paris and the surrounding areas. That's one of my favorites. But It literally this morning before this interview, I was like, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I'm trying to do my translation. I have to give a talk, an hour talk in French. And so I had a transcription of my recent talk that I gave in English. I was getting very anxious and I can't speak French when I'm nervous. And I had to tell myself, wait a second, you're complaining about being flown to Paris to be asked about the book that you love and you've been speaking about for the last, come on. 
fun. Have fun with it. Just try. And so I switched from, oh my God, I'm going to do this to, I just got this set of French questions they're going to ask me. And so instead of trying to type it out and be very specific, I just tried to answer it just off the cuff as if I was in an interview. It went so much better. I recorded it and I knew I was making mistakes, but that kind of got me. I was like asking for what purpose? is this? And yes, I am nervous because of course I want to do a good job, but the core is I want to spread this knowledge. And the best way to do that is to kind of be in my enthusiasm and be in my joy of sharing this knowledge. And I can't do that if I'm worrying about whether the word is masculine or feminine and, 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 you know, (laughs) I stop myself from speaking because of that. So that helps me a lot coming back to the purpose which often brings up the joy, the creativity, the reason why you're heading in that direction in the first place. And I think it's also important to remember your actual speciality, which is that you're coming at this from a science point of view. We've heard lots of therapists talking about it. We haven't heard so much of it from a science point of view. So let's actually dive Mm -hmm. into the science. What is the science of anxiety? There are many different ways to approach the science of anxiety. And Many people have written about the changes or the differences in brains of people that are clinically anxious. There may be some genetic factors, but how I approached it is using what we know about neuroscience to help bring down these feelings of high levels of anxiety for people with everyday anxiety. So it's about understanding that for example, that every single neuroscience major in the United States or student uh, across Europe has studied. That is, we all have a part of the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. Did you know that that is part of the nervous system that naturally de-stresses us? We have a natural de-stressing part of the nervous system. Everybody knows about fight or flight part of the nervous system, which happens to be called the sympathetic nervous system, but this is the equal and opposite part of the nervous system. And so for people with everyday anxiety, instead of focusing on the fight or flight part, you should be asking yourself, what can I do to activate my parasympathetic nervous system? And it turns out that one of the best ways to do that, and the one of the best ways we have conscious access to actually activating that is deep breathing. Because one of the things the system does normally is it slows down our heart rate, slows down our respiration rate. Now, I can't slow down my heart rate by thinking about it, but I can breathe deeply. And when you think about the fact that monks for hundreds of years, even though they don't know the term parasympathetic nervous system, maybe 200 years ago or 500 years ago, they knew that slowing their breath down brought them into a calm meditative state. And we know that this helps many people, even in the height of an anxiety attack, just taking that moment to slow their breathing down consciously, focusing on the feeling of the respiration going in and out is one of the reasons that it helps. And it helps from a neuroscience perspective because you are activating this natural de-stressing part of your nervous system. And do you think it helps to sort of focus on your surroundings as well? So you're actually mentally describing to yourself where you are so that that's actually grounding you as well. Is that a useful idea? That can help as well. I think there's more information about the power of breath work, again, the oldest form of meditation that we know, to calm us down. But there's all sorts of variations, like the one that you just gave, that could be helpful. Because I know for some people, and even for me, for certain breath exercises, it makes me stressed, especially if they make you hold it for a really long time, like nine counts, hold your breath for nine counts. And I was like, are you trying to suffocate me? So sometimes you have to find a version that is particularly helpful for you. But for many people, the slowing down of the breath is a very powerful tool to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and to start to naturally kind of de-stress you. And your expertise is the brain's plasticity. Yes. Can that help us too with anxiety? Absolutely. So brain plasticity is the understanding that the adult human brain has a capacity to change and grow new networks or shrink. So there's positive brain plasticity. It can get bigger and fatter and stronger. And there's negative brain plasticity. What's the most common 
Examples of negative brain plasticity, long-term stress, long-term anxiety, because from a neuroscience perspective, what that does is it elevates uh, stress hormones like cortisol for a long, long time. And if that happens, first you start to damage brain cells in two key brain areas, the prefrontal cortex right behind your forehead and the hippocampus deep in your temporal lobe. These are two areas that you do not want to damage because they're also highly susceptible to aging and neurodegenerative disease states. So high levels of cortisol will first start to damage the input structures of neurons in these two areas, the dendrites. And then with high levels of stress, for example, if you do have clinical levels of PTSD, it will start to kill cells in both your prefrontal cortex and your hippocampus. So we want to deploy positive brain plasticity to shift that around. And there's lots of things that you can do. New learning is really good. Exercise is one of my specialties. Very, very powerful way to grow actual new brain cells in the hippocampus and grow new synapses in the prefrontal cortex, for example. Now, I'm going to quote you, we can regulate our emotions. Now, I think there's going to be quite a few people who are going to rather question that. So why do you say we can regulate our emotions? I say that we could regulate our emotions, and this comes in the context of situations of everyday anxiety. Again, I'm not talking about very severe clinical levels of anxiety or depression, but there are absolutely ways that we know, again, from the study of neuroscience and psychology, that can shift our emotions. Mostly, I'm referring to strategies that help decrease negative affective states and increase positive affective states. And I think that has been shown clinically. Okay, so I'm going to go through four ways that we regulate our emotions. Some of them are better than others, mm -hmm. but I think it's useful for people to actually realise the ways that they might unconsciously be using to regulate their anxiety. Yeah. And then we can look at some better ways of doing it. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to take you through the four ways that you identify. The first way of dealing with anxiety is we just avoid it. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. it sounds terribly negative, but there are some benefits to avoiding yeah. anxiety, aren't there? So Absolutely. talk me through the advantages and disadvantages of, of avoiding. Yeah. I mean... Avoiding is absolutely can be a very useful strategy. It takes that anxiety provoking stimulus out of your life, at least temporarily. But sometimes avoidance is not a possibility and it could have other detrimental aspects. And by avoiding, you pass up the opportunity to perhaps understand more deeply what and why that stimulus is anxiety provoking and perhaps come with a different angle that includes the possibility of, of maybe it's a person in your life. Sometimes it's very difficult to control. You can't control that person. They'll be coming in and out. So by not avoiding and addressing that anxiety provoking stimulus and asking yourself, you know, why am I having these uncomfortable emotions? What does this tell me about my values, about what I like, what I don't like, what is happening? And it gives you this opportunity to take action on this situation in a new way. And I know many people, including myself, feel paralyzed. Like, it's happening to me. I have no control over it. But that's also one of the big myths that I dispelled in myself and that I'd like to kind of invite people to dispel in their lives. There's always something that you can do, including just a deeper understanding and learning of yourself, where these fears come from. I've learned to do this for myself. And it's really been a, a learning experience. But yeah, I, I've had this for so long. Where does this come from? How do I understand this for myself? Sometimes it's very helpful to have an outside person, a therapist, to go through it with you. But that is what these uncomfortable emotions help you understand. 
and sometimes avoiding actually becomes worse and worse yes. because, say, for example, there's something between you and your partner, mm. there's something that they are doing, like they're threatening to, I don't know, be angry if you mm. do ABC, yeah. and you're always avoiding their anger. Um, number one, often avoiding people's anger makes them more angry. <laughs> the issues don't get dealt with, and then they move up another notch. Yeah. So sometimes the old strategies stop working and avoiding is one of the ones that generally is a bit of a time-specific one. It'll work in the short term, yes. but it doesn't work so well in the long term. Yeah. So the first way we sometimes regulate our anxieties by avoiding it. The next one is modifying the situation. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. Yeah. So modifying the situation, I in the book, I gave the example of going on a job interview is often very anxiety provoking, especially these days when we have more possibilities of ways of doing these interviews. Maybe face-to-face -face is very, very scary for you. Maybe Zoom is easier. You can do it in the comfort of your own home studio and, and make you feel more comfortable. Maybe a phone interview possibility will make you feel more comfortable. A lot of these ideas really ask you to be creative in new ways and come up with 10 different ways to do the thing that you only thought there was one way. Well, if you start thinking about that, you realize, oh my God, there, there are so many different ways. And that is part of the reason why those of us with everyday anxiety, and I've, I've seen this myself, even in just regular problem solving, where the problem is causing a lot of anxiety, using my own creativity has solved that problem for me. And so thinking about it in this positive sense, like, oh, not that it's just this terrible anxiety provoking thing, but challenging yourself. Can you think of four other different ways where this might be done that would ease your anxiety or make you feel more comfortable to think about it all in 100% positive terms? That sounds brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Option number three is attention deployment. Mm, yeah. So Tell me about that. Yeah. Attention deployment. I think the easiest way to understand that for those of you with young children, you distract your kid from the scary dog on the left by showing him the cute little stuffed dog on your right. It's like focus on what is not anxiety provoking, what is enjoyable. And this can be used in, again, my common interview situation by coming with topics that you want to talk about that highlight what you want to talk about. Not that you take over the whole thing, but have those in your back pocket. These are topics. These are areas that you're really comfortable. It makes you look really, really good. And it's focusing your attention on how can I work this into the conversation? I want to talk about this because I know I'm really good. I sound really good when I'm talking about this. So, so that's the idea. And this next one sounds really promising. Cognitive change. Ah, yes. So cognitive change, one of the things that I think is so powerful that I talk about in this book is the power of your mindset. Mindset is simply a fancy way of saying your belief system. What do you believe? Because what you believe, we've come to understand, really not just changes how you think about something, but it changes our whole physiological response. And I think that one of the gifts or superpowers that comes from anxiety is that having those challenges around you, they all provide useful opportunities to shift your mindset around how you deal with uncomfortable situations. Can you think of this as a challenge instead of a terrible task that you have to do? It really shifts the way. It's like, oh yeah, I can do it. Can you deploy your uh, competitive spirit against yourself or for yourself instead of saying, oh God, I have to do that again. I hate doing that task. So that's the power of mindset. After we've had the four ways of coping, I'm going to give you the six pathways of anxiety that can we use in our brain. So I think that would be useful to understand those. So let's pull them out one by one. I'll give them to you. You tell me. Okay. So we've got a team here. Okay. Don't look so worried. Okay. <laughs> I know because I've written books. You write a book and then two years later, somebody asks you the details of it. They read it five minutes ago. Right, you right. wrote it two years ago. So... <laughs> On page 32, what did you mean when you said, uh, oh? Exactly. So the first of the pathways, and actually perhaps it would be useful for you to explain what you mean by a pathway. Okay. So usually when I talk about pathways, they are particular networks of brain areas that get deployed, that get used for a particular 
task. Often people talk about, you know, this is the one brain area that's active when you do this, the language area, the vision area. But the truth is that any task that you're doing with your brain, you are deploying not just a single area, but a whole series of areas that are typically interconnected and interlinked in a complex way. And that's what I refer to as a pathway. So these are the useful pathways we've got ready to help us with anxiety. The first one is emotional. Yes. The emotional pathway, again, it's not just one brain area. It's just not just one pathway because we have this kaleidoscope of emotions. And the pathways that can help you are kind of the opposite, not the opposite, but if you have lots of uncomfortable emotions coming up, one useful strategy is to deploy the positive emotions to try and kind of counterbalance this. What do I mean by that? Well, can you make it a challenge? Can you bring out your creativity, which is aspirational and can kind of put the uncomfortable situation in a a more positive emotional sense? So, you know, I I really can't name because we were not clear on all the brain areas that get activated with this kaleidoscope of emotions, but that's the kind of general gist of what I wanted to uh, convey there. And then you've got the attention pathway. Yes. Attention is focused on the functions of the prefrontal cortex, which is right behind your forehead. It allows you to shift and focus your attention. And sometimes your attention gets taken. A shiny silver thing in the window can attract your attention explicitly. But this is, in fact, literally what the practice of meditation can do. The practice of meditation is the practice of putting your attention exactly where you want it. So maybe you're worrying about what might happen five days from now. There's a really, really terrible thing or possibly terrible thing that might happen five days from now. The practice of meditation lets you shift your attention from five days from now to the present moment, because right now, everything is fine. I feel fine. Nothing's fine. Yep. You and I are here together and we're doing fine. Exactly. Yes. You do something called a tea meditation, which I assume is a very good way of using the attention pathways. It activates the attention pathways. I searched for years for a form of meditation that I would like and that I would do. It is a meditation over the brewing and the drinking of tea. I do my tea meditation first thing in the morning. None of these, you know, tea bags. I use real, you know, loose tea and I brew my filtered water and then I warm my cups. I seep the tea. I let it sit. I pour the tea. I drink the tea in silence, no distractions. And I focus on that experience, on what the tea smells like, what it tastes like, on the warmth of the cup, or I use tea bowls. And then when that's done, I do it again, because doing it with tea gives me a natural kind of sequence that goes on and on. And because I love tea, I love the taste of tea, I love the ritual of tea, it gives my meditation meaning. And it's the only thing that really kept me going when I learned this. I literally came home, did it every single day from that day on. And this was now six years ago. And if you are distracted, your thoughts, you go back to the action you're doing at the moment. I'm supposed to be watching the tea brewing at this precise moment. I'm supposed to put the tea into the pot at this point. Instead of focusing on your breathing, you're focusing on the activity or you're focusing on the taste of the tea, how warm it feels going down your throat. And that is taking the attention pathway and taking it away from anxiety. And for how long does your tea meditation last? Usually about 45 minutes in the morning. My gosh, you drink a lot of tea. I do. I drink an enormous (laughs) amount of tea. But I only drink it for that 45 minutes in the morning and no more for the rest of the day. And the funny thing is that it had a beneficial side effect that I never realized it would have because this tea monk that taught me this tea meditation said, when you do your tea meditation, you should make sure that you are around living things, plants. And so I put all my plants, you can't see them, but but they're all around me. And the other thing that I do during the tea meditation is I really look at my plants. And it turns out when you look at your plants, you can tell when they need watering. 
And so the unintended <laughs> positive thing is that I kept all my plants alive because they were all like dead and dying. <laughs> so, so it was very beneficial for my plants too. And the third pathway is connection. Tell uh, me about that. Yeah. We humans are social animals. Connection is very, very rewarding to us. In fact, one of the stats that I love is that the number one factor that will predict a long life, I thought it was going to be exercise because I study exercise. I'm like, hey, I have to be exercise. But it is the number of social connections that you have. And it's not only, you know, your best friend that you've had for 30 years. No, it's, do you have friendly interactions with the barista at Starbucks that does your coffee or do you just ignore them and get your coffee? Or do you have a little, little positive interaction? Those count too, because again, we're social animals that activates dopamine in the brain that activates the social kind of interconnected pathway and social network in your brain. And that is very relaxing. It decreases stress. It increases positive affect. And so it's very, very beneficial overall. And it serves to decrease anxiety as well. So suddenly you're thinking, I'm feeling anxious. I could use the connection pathway. How would you do that in a practical sort of kind of way? What I, in fact, this is literally one of my recommendations in the last part of the book, which is a part of the book called Learning to Worry Well. Call your funniest friend. I have a funny friend. She lives in LA. So when I'm anxious, I just need to laugh at something really silly. I just call her. Everybody has a friend like that. And maybe you don't have a friend. So that's what Netflix comedy specials are for. Go watch that. That's also a good way to activate that laugh pathway in your brain and decrease your anxiety. And then there is rewards. Yeah. Yeah. So we know a lot about the reward pathway. It's centered on a brain structure called the ventral tegmental area that produces a neurotransmitter that we've all heard of, dopamine. And a lot of the book is pointing out that these activities that I'm pointing you to are activities that are known to activate dopamine, the ventral tegmental area and dopamine, which will give you that hit of reward. Sex activates dopamine. That's why it feels so good. Chocolate and wine are activating dopamine. Also, compassion, doing a, you're giving a compassionate act to the world also activates dopamine. That's one of my favorite kind of uh, hacks to decrease your anxieties. Do something nice for somebody else. Appreciation. There's so many people around the world right in this moment of time that are in a terrible state. And there is a power in reaching out, helping those that need it in a way that you can do. And that's a wonderful way to take the worry off of your problems and kind of help the rest of the world. And next we have creativity. Yes. People have studied creativity. That's one of my number one myths of the brain, along with you only use 10% of it. You don't. You use almost all your brain all the time. But that creativity is somehow limited to one half of your brain. In fact, recent studies show that the more you use both sides of the brain, the more creative you are. And creativity, we've already talked about this, trying to find five reasons not to avoid an anxiety-provoking situation, but to kind of take it on head-on in new ways, that is deploying your creativity. I think those of us with everyday anxieties, we have a natural list of things that we can use our creativity for. And also that kind of brings in the mindset shift. It's not dealing with anxiety. It's activating your creativity network in your brain to kind of approach these anxiety-provoking situations in new and positive ways. And the last one is resilience. What do you mean by resilience? Yes. Resilience is basically the learning that you can survive and even get stronger after surviving a stressful situation. And what people don't realize is there are studies that show in experiments, people or experimental subjects that are exposed to 
intermittent kind of medium level grade stressful situations, those are the people that show the highest, those are the subjects that show the highest level of resilience and stress. It's called stress inoculation compared to other subjects that never got any tiny little stressful situation at all. We are learning. We are learning human beings. And so we learn from every single stressful situation, whether you know it or not. And that's another mindset shift. Like every time you get through, it's not just, oh my God, thank God. I just never want to have that along uh, ever again. It is appreciating that. It's like, I got through that. I made it through. Look, I'm still here. And what can I learn? What can I learn? From that situation, that will up your resilience and your ability to kind of withstand the next round of stressful situation, which will always come. That's the world that we live in, even better. Now, I think a lot of people will recognize this one. How do we deal with the what if list? Ah. Because we all are anxious, not so much about what's happening now, but what might happen in the future. Sure. So do you have any help on that topic? Yes. I think the secret sauce of this book or the part of the book that I'm most proud of are what I ended up calling the gifts or superpowers that come from anxiety. And we've been talking about them, but not calling them necessarily superpowers. But I always start with this one the superpower of actual productivity that comes from your anxiety because it's so easy to understand and it's something that all your listeners can walk away with as something that they can do and implement today. And so this comes from a very common form of anxiety, which is the what if list. What what if I didn't write that email in the most diplomatic way? What if I didn't do it early enough? What if I, you know, didn't write my whole paper well enough? All these what if what I if upset my boss? Yeah. What if I upset my boss? And yeah, they seemed angry at me. What if that's going to snowball into a terrible fight later? And that is very, very common. It hits me right before I'm going to go to sleep. And then it wakes me up and it's even worse because I have the worry in the middle of the night and I have lack of sleep. Yeah. Three o'clock in the morning is my favorite Ah, time for the what if list. Also very popular time. So here is the trick. This is the jujitsu move that we could all use when that what if list comes up, no matter what times it comes up. You literally turn that what if list into a to do list. Your what if is what if the boss is mad at me? Well, Maybe something you can put on your to-do list is ask the boss, is there anything we need to talk out? Go face it directly. Ask somebody else their opinion, whether you should be worried about that or not. Take an action on each one of these worries. And this helps because our anxiety evolved to take an action on. 2.5 million years ago, you either ran from the line or fought the line. Those were the two actions. So by turning your what-if list into a to-do list, you help to resolve that feeling of anxiety because you're taking an action and savor the moment of checking it off once you've actually done it. And what is the byproduct of that? You turn your what if anxiety into productivity, into productivity, because are you going to be more productive if you don't have to worry about that nagging idea that your boss is mad at you? Yes, you are. I actually, this was not my idea. It came from a lawyer that I happened to be talking to when I was writing this book. And she said, I'm a high paid lawyer because of my anxiety. And she told me about this trick that she uses in her court cases. And she turns her what if list into all the things she needs to do to prepare the strongest case possible for her clients. That is ultimate productivity. And it's very lucrative for her as well. So everybody can use this. It certainly fits your category of a superpower, doesn't it? Yes, it it does. Have you got another superpower for us? The book describes six different superpowers, but my second superpower that I like to talk about is the superpower of flow. So flow is a psychological idea that, you know, certain times you're kind of working at your highest capacity and some days that talk, that presentation, that tennis game just goes beautifully. You are flowing in that activity. It doesn't happen all the time. It's, you know, the only certain times. And we know that anxiety just cuts that off. If you have anxiety, am I going to play well in my tennis game? Am I going to give a presentation well? It can cut that off. That's terrible. And so I wanted to address it in the book, but I didn't want to address it in a depressing way. Sorry, you just, if you have everyday anxiety, no more flow for you. 
And so the way I solved this is thinking about it, thinking about it, ruminating about it. And I went to a yoga class to kind of get a little physical activity in. And I go to the yoga class, doing all the moves. And then we get to the end of class and we go into corpse pose, Shavasana. And I'm in Shavasana. We're lying on our backs, just doing nothing there. And I thought, I'm flowing in Shavasana. There's nobody doing Shavasana better than I am doing Shavasana. I'm laying on the ground just beautifully. I'm flowing in Shavasana. And I thought, that's it. It's not classic flow. I call it micro flow. But it's really the concept of savoring, savoring moments in your day that can be easily overlooked if you're in a state of anxiety. But at the same time, if you start to notice that, it gives you these little bursts of relief, of joy. Can you savor that morning cup of tea during your meditation? Can you savor that shower that felt so good? Can you savor that smoothie? I always use my example. I make this green smoothie for myself first thing in the morning. And you might think, well, that's savoring. Why is that a superpower exactly for anybody with everyday anxiety? And I'll tell you why. There's a concept called the negative contrast effect in psychology, which basically means the highs in our lives are higher because we've also experienced the lows. So apply this to the art of savoring. The savoring is sweeter because we are experiencing these uncomfortable emotions in our everyday anxiety because of the world that we live in. That's never going to go away. It's part of our normal human emotion. But you can make the most out of those uncomfortable situations by giving yourself these moments of savoring, these moments of microflow, and that's how it becomes a superpower for those of us with everyday anxiety. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the things we're doing new now on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting everybody to write in with a dilemma that they'd like me to talk to one of my guests about. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you'll find out all about this podcast, how to support us and become a supporter. And at the bottom, there is a form that allows you to fill in and send a letter to me to ask one of my guests to discuss with me. And this is one that's come from a lady. I found out in the worst possible way about my husband's affair. She emailed me on Facebook detailing what had been going on for five months behind my back. After a string of emails and a day later, my partner made the decision to end it with her and work on our relationship. This fueled her fire and she ended up sending me more emails and even contacting my family and friends. She also tried to play the card of pretending she was pregnant with his baby. This tore me in two and even three months later, I'm still struggling to come to terms with what has happened as the relationship me and my partner had before this was perfect. At the beginning, my partner reassured me every day that he would fight for us and do whatever it takes. He also promised that he would find another job so that I needn't worry anymore about them working together. Since all these promises and showers of affection, my partner has changed slightly. He says he feels low and that he feels I will never be happy again as I'm always talking about what he did. The constant flooding of what happened in my mind makes us feel like we're going round in circles and we will never see the light. I've told him on a number of occasions that I feel the only way for us to move forward is for him to find a new job and get away from her, but he has been honest and told me that he no longer wants to leave. I'm confused. Why is he not wanting to persist in looking for a job if that's what will help us move forward? Any thoughts on this, Wendy? Well, first, I understand and my heart goes out to your listener. It clearly is a very, very difficult, high anxiety type of situation. And I feel for you. I'm not a therapist, but I am a neuroscientist. And I could just describe what is happening in your brain right now to give you perhaps a neuroscience insight and also offer some short-term and long-term science-based kind of approaches 
to decrease the level of your anxiety. This is a classic case of high kind of chronic anxiety as you've gone through this for several months. There is lots of activation of a brain area that is important for detecting threats. Clearly, there's a threatening situation in your personal life. That brain area is called the amygdala, highly, highly active for you right now. And the reason why you want to try and decrease this anxiety level is that when threat and amygdala activation is very high, it tends to shut off the useful activity that you have in your prefrontal cortex. That is the area that not just shifts and focuses attention. We talked about it in the context of attention, but it's very critical for decision-making. You have some important decisions to be made. So you want your brain. And what I'd love to do is just empower you to get your brain in the best state possible to make the best decision for yourself. And so I can tell you that getting yourself out of this highly anxious state would be very, very beneficial. So we've talked about things that can help with that. Breath work, meditation can be helpful. I'm not going to lie to you. It Sometimes it can take a little practice to get into meditation. What I might recommend for you in particular is another thing we touched on very briefly, which is the power of physical activity. Moving your body, even going for a 10-minute walk outside can decrease your negative mood states like depression and anxiety and up your positive mood states. And anybody with any clothes you're wearing right now can go take a walk outside. Let me tell you why this is helpful. It's helpful because every time you move your body, you are releasing a whole bunch of neurochemicals in your brain, including dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, endorphins. And that is literally giving your brain this wonderful bubble bath of neurochemicals that dopamine is helping to increase your reward, feeling of reward. Serotonin is a, a good positive feeling. That's what's released in typical antidepressants. And so it can give you at least a temporary relief. And the good thing is because it works in just 10 minutes, Everybody can do 10 minutes a day and it quickly builds up. So you can, you know, change your baseline kind of mood level. That will be very powerful because it will give you, I mean, I can't tell you what decision is going to be made in this difficult situation, but I can tell you that decreasing your anxiety level through physical activity, meditation, whatever combo you want, will help put your brain in the best state possible to make the best decision that you can make for yourself. And I think that actually managing the immediate anxiety so that, and you're just 5% calmer, that you are less likely to expect your partner to manage your anxiety for Mm -hmm. you. Now, I can understand why you want him to manage the anxiety for you, because it was he that made you anxious (laughs) in the first place. And he seems to have the ability to make you less anxious. But, and this is the big catch, when you are overloaded with anxiety and to the point that you're sort of, I don't know, almost shaking, he's going to feel so guilty and so full of shame, which not a bad thing. But if he's overloaded with it as well, what he will do will do anything he can do to bring down your anxiety levels at that moment. So, for example, he will say, I will quit my job. Mm. And at those few seconds when you're shaking in front of him, He will mean it because he will do anything to get rid of your high levels of anxiety. But the problem is, as you found out a few weeks later, when everything's just a bit calmer, he will realise, well, actually, it's not going to be that easy to find exactly the job that I want. and It might take a long time. And do I really want to leave my job? And now we've got him backtracking about that. And actually, the fact he's backtracking is making you anxious again, because you thought that he was going to leave his job and now he isn't. And what does it mean? Whereas if you can be just a little less anxious at that moment, the two of you can have a much more constructive kind of conversation. He can say things like, well, on one hand, I would like to leave my job because actually it's really difficult dealing with her. But on the other hand, it's going to be really hard. And 
you can, the two of you can begin to talk together about how that's going to be dealt with. Is it possible for him not to see her? Is it possible for him to work in a different part of the organization, et cetera, et cetera? The two of you can have a constructive conversation together. If he's just trying to manage your anxiety, it's not actually going to be possible to have this kind of constructive conversation. So it's really difficult because on one land, the Bloomingwell should be managing your anxiety, but actually nobody else can do it beyond you. That's the really tough part of it. So um, I hope that some of the suggestions that uh, Wendy has made and that's in the whole of this particular podcast will help you think about ways that you can manage your anxiety on a day-to-day basis that idea of actually just focusing down onto the here and now, being kind to yourself, because, you know, this has only happened very, very recently. You know, this is natural to be anxious. We just want to keep it into the high levels of everyday anxiety rather than tipping over into overwhelmment. I mean, and what do you think of taking medication if you find that you can't cope with anxiety yourself? I mean, I think that that is a very common approach that people use. And and absolutely, there are situations where it's absolutely warranted. It's a personal decision. And what I will emphasize is that I think that there are additional approaches that can help uh, manage anxiety that can be used before you decide to go on medication or in parallel with that. Do I think that people are using it to its full extent? No, I don't. And so I would recommend, I mean, that's part of the reason why I wrote this book. There are so many students across the United States that are on anti-anxiety medications. And I think that there are clearly a subset of them that could manage it with non-pharmacological means. And so this was a means to kind of get that information out there. Excellent. Well, let's turn the tables on to you. This program is all about the meaningful life. And so I have to ask you, Wendy Suzuki, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful? My family makes my life meaningful. My friends make my life meaningful. And the work that I get to do in science, in teaching, in just speaking to the general public. I feel very lucky to be able to do that. And I, I love kind of making science accessible to people. All of those things make my life meaningful. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time now. But in the bonus material, I'm going to be asking Wendy about her speciality of exercise in the brain and how exercise can actually improve and boost our brain power and also obviously deal with anxiety. So I'm looking forward to exploring that. We'll also be reflecting on this interview and I'll be sharing what I found particularly helpful from it. And I'll be asking her for three things she knows deep down to be true. If you want to find out more and listen to the bonus material, all you have to do to is subscribe to our service. There's two ways you can do that. If you are an Apple user, you can uh, subscribe through your Apple service. If you are on another podcast platform, go across to my website and you can become a supporter through Patreon. So here comes all the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.